Can you guys believe that we are already in another December at the end of another year? It is flown by so quickly. Now, I'm not complaining. December comes with a lot of perks that I really enjoy, like Christmas and Christmas presents and all the good food that surrounds Christmas and time with our families. And a lot of us get time off work and a break from our schedules to reset and, and take a rest. But as quickly as December has come around this year, that means that there's another January on the horizon. And with January comes not some, some fun perks like uh, setting new, new Year's resolutions, like new diets or going to get a new gym plan or uh, trying to save some more money or a Daniel fast. All of these things that come with, all of these things, <laughs> all of these things that come with January uh, are not so as exciting as the perks that we have um, with December. And a lot of us like to set New Year's resolutions, and I'm not trying to belittle that or make fun of that. I'm all for setting goals, and I'm all for taking some time to, to pause and reflect on, on the past year and see where you can get better and see where you can make some improvements. But if we were all brutally honest with ourselves and we look back over our past New Year's resolutions that we've set, some of those books that we were supposed to read from last year are still sitting half-opened next to our beds. Those new gym shoes that we bought and gym clothes that we bought have slowly made their way to the back of the cupboard and gathering some dust. The Daniel fast was good till about the second day when you were starving and tired of eating raw oats and you buckled for a steak. But sometimes when God puts things on our heart and when God asks us to do things, we can't treat them like New Year's resolutions. We need to take them with a little bit more seriousness. We need to take them as things that God has placed on our hearts and things that God is asking us to do. This morning, the title of my message is Get Started, and we're going to be looking at the life and the story of Moses to help us all get some encouragement and to help us get a push to start with the things that God has placed on our hearts. Over the last month, Pastor Randy has had us in a message series called Dreamer where we've looked at the life and the story of Joseph, and we saw how God gave this young boy a dream and then allowed some interesting life events to take place in his life that ultimately prepared him and shaped him into the man capable of managing the dream that God had given him. Now, just like Joseph, God has given me some dreams. He's placed some things on my heart, and I believe the same is true for each of you. But as life has happened, the disappointments, the setbacks, the hardships, Sometimes those things that God has asked us to do, the dreams that he's given us, sometimes take a back seat. I know for me in my own life, when things haven't gone the way that I wanted them to go or expected them to go, uh, I often checked out because I lacked the maturity and the discipline to persevere like, like Joseph did. But during the course of this message series, the Holy Spirit has gently been encouraging me and reminding me of some of the things that he's placed on my heart, some of the things that he's spoken to me that he wants me to get going with again. Now, that might be the same for you. Maybe if you've been here over the last month, the Holy Spirit's been working on your heart too. He's been reminding you about some of the things that God has asked you to do that have taken a back seat in your life because of disappointment or failure or whatever it may be. And he's been encouraging you to pick those things back up again and to get started with them in this new year. Or maybe God's given you a brand new dream. Maybe he's been speaking to you about some new things that he wants you to focus on and pay attention to going into this new year. Whatever it is, I think that we all have something that God has been speaking to us about. Maybe for you, it's that new business idea that he's given you. He's given you a really innovative business idea that's been sitting on your heart for some time, but you've lacked the courage to go and take the steps to get that business up and running. Maybe for you, it's your health. 
God has been challenging you about your health, and not just your physical health, but your mental health, your emotional health, and your spiritual health. And maybe this new year is time that you make some changes in those areas so that you can see some serious progression in all those areas of your life. Maybe it's healing and restoration in a damaged relationship. Maybe God's been massaging your heart and dealing with your heart and the spiritual about that damaged relationship. And it's now time that you took some steps, some bold steps in the natural to receive the healing that he has for you in that damaged relationship. We all have something, and I don't know what that is for you, but the Holy Spirit does, and I believe that he's speaking to all of us about that in our daily lives. I'm going to give you a second to think about what that may be for you. I don't know about you guys, but when I start to think about starting something new, moving towards a dream that God has placed on my heart, there's a bunch of mixed emotions that come over me. There's emotions of tremendous uh, joy and excitement. What if I start that business idea and it's a huge success? What if I pursue healing in that relationship? How much, how much peace and healing could there be? What if I go back to gym in January and actually stick with it for a whole year? How healthy and fit will I be at the end of the year? But what accompanies those emotions of joy and excitement are also the emotions of fear and anxiety. What if I give that business idea a bash and it fails and I lose everything? I've tried to go back to gym so many times. I never stick with it, so I'm just not going to do it again. There's no ways I'm putting myself out there and making myself vulnerable again and apologizing for something that I didn't do. The last time I did that, I was so hurt. What can very quickly happen is we find ourselves trapped and paralyzed in a cul-de-sac of our own thoughts and emotions. Should I go this way? Should I go that way? Should I start the business? Shouldn't I start the business? Should I say sorry? Shouldn't I say sorry? We find ourselves trapped and paralyzed in this cul-de-sac of our emotions, don't know which way to go or what to do. So what we do is we take a seat and we just stay where we are. We stay neutral. When I find myself trapped in this place, what has often helped me to move past uh, feeling trapped and getting out of my own emotions is to develop a clear picture of where I want to be. Taking some time to pause and think about what it is that I would like to accomplish in the next couple of years. Where is it that I would like to be? How would I like to be remembered? And how would I like to be spoken about? Because when I have a clear picture of where I want to go and where I need to be, I have a better idea of where I need to start and the things that I need to do to get to that place. So this morning I'd like us to start off by taking a look at the end of Moses' life in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews is known as the Hall of Fame for Bible, Bible characters. It is where all the famous Bible characters are mentioned for the tremendous things that they did through their faith. And when it gets to, when it gets to Moses, this is what it says about the life of Moses. In Hebrews 11 verse 24 and 26, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. What a powerful statement. What an incredible thing to be said about you at the end of your life. What a remarkable way to be remembered and spoken about. And this is how Moses was remembered. This is how Moses was spoken about. And this was Moses was known for at the end of his life. But it was not where Moses began, and I don't think it was how people spoke about them at the beginning of his life. 
Now, you might have been in church your whole life, and you might have had a fantastic Sunday school teacher that taught you all about Moses and the life of Moses, and you know the events of where he started and what happened in his life. Or maybe you just know the name of Moses, but you're not too familiar with all that happened in his life. So for the sake of context, I'd just like to recap a little bit of Moses' life, rewind a bit, and then bring us to the place in his life where we're going to pick up and focus this morning. Moses would have been born a slave. Both of Moses' parents would have been slaves to the Egyptian empire at the time of his birth, making Moses a slave at birth. To make things worse, at the time of Moses' birth, Pharaoh became incredibly insecure about his rule. He noticed that the Hebrew people were multiplying in number and becoming strong in their strength, and he realized that if he didn't do something about this, there might come a time when the Hebrew people decide to have an uprise and throw him out of power. So Pharaoh decided to pass an incredibly evil and wicked rule that all of the firstborn Hebrew boys were to be taken and chucked in the Nile River. When Moses' mother heard of this evil order that Pharaoh had passed, she decided that she was going to get out ahead of Pharaoh. And she took her baby boy and she put him in a basket made of reeds that would have floated. And she probably made out like she was being obedient to what Pharaoh had asked her to do. Because if you can imagine the picture at the time, there probably would have been a bunch of Egyptian gods raiding all of the houses, getting all the baby boys out. And she would have put Moses in the basket, making out like she was going to the river um, to put her baby boy in the river. But when she got down to the Nile River, she took Moses, she put him in the basket, and she put him in the river, and the basket floated. And by the hand and the grace of God, Moses was not swept away by the current of the Nile River, and he was not eaten by a crocodile, but instead, he gracefully drifted into the area of the river where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing. And when Pharaoh's daughter saw Moses in this basket, this cute Hebrew baby boy, she decided to take Moses in as her own and raise him in the courts of Egypt as her own son. Moses was not raised as a slave, but he was raised as a prince. He was raised as a leader. He was given the best foods, the best education. Um, he probably would have been trained in the military ways of the Egyptian people because he was a man. And he would have also been given responsibility because of who he was in the Egyptian court. Scripture tells us that 40 years later, while Moses is out going about his responsibilities that he was most likely given amongst all the Hebrew slaves, he notices an Egyptian guard abusing two of the Hebrew slaves. So he goes over to diffuse the situation, and when he gets there, things must have gotten out of control, and Moses ends up murdering the Egyptian guard. In panic, Moses grabs the body and buries it in the sand in the hope that no other Egyptian people saw him do this, and he must have been thinking that because he was defending the Hebrew people, they would have defended him too, and they would have protected him if any questions were asked. Scripture tells us the next day Moses is out again amongst the Hebrew people um, going about his business and he notices two Hebrew slaves having some conflict. So he goes over to the two Hebrew slaves to defuse the situation. He says, my brothers, why are you fighting amongst each other? And one of the slaves turns to Moses and says to Moses, who made you ruler over us? And what are you going to do about it? Murder us like you murdered the Egyptian God? As soon as Moses hears this, he must have realized that his own people were not going to protect him. And he fires up his Mustang, that's his horse, and he, and he departs from Egypt as quickly as he can to get as far away from Egypt and as far away from Pharaoh as he possibly can. Because he knows if this gets back to Pharaoh, he's most likely going to be arrested and put to death. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us how long Moses wandered in the desert for by himself and where he went up and all the things that he went through. But it does tell us eventually that he finds his way to a place called Midian. Moses finds himself a wife. 
he gets married, he has children, and he gets a new occupation as a shepherd, looking after his father-in-law's sheep. One day while Moses is out um, tending to the sheep, to his father-in-law's sheep, uh, he, has the burning, he has the burning bush experience. He notices a bush that has been, he's noticing a bush that has been consumed. Um, he notices a bush that is on fire, but it has not been consumed by the flames. So he thought that this is odd and goes over to see what is happening. And as he approaches this bush that is on fire, as he takes a couple steps closer to it, God calls out to Moses and says, Moses, Moses, do not come any closer. Take off your, your sandals and this is, ho- this is holy ground. And this conversation begins to take place between Moses and God. God says to Moses, Moses, I've seen how your people are suffering in Egypt. I've seen the struggles that they're going through. I've heard their cries. And what I want you to do, Moses, is I want you to go back to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let all my people go. So we, this is where we are picking up the story uh, this morning. It's in this conversation that Moses had with God. And I'd like us to look at this conversation together because I believe it's in this conversation that we're going to find the motivation and the encouragement to get started with the things that God has placed on our hearts. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing that you need to take down as a main point is simply start where you are. Simply start where you are. We are picking up this conversation between Moses and God in Exodus 3, 11 and 12, but this conversation spans across the whole of Exodus 3 and 4, and I would encourage you in your daily 20 this week um, to go and spend some time reading that full conversation so you can get some context for yourself. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to highlight a couple of points from this conversation um, and we're going to pick it up in Exodus 3, 11, and 12. It's important to remember that God has just told Moses for the first time, Hey Moses, I see your people are struggling and I want you to go back to Pharaoh and tell them to let all my people go. So Moses responds to God for the first time in Exodus 3, 11, and 12. And Moses said, Moses said, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What do you think Moses is thinking? Well, I'm not going to say anything to God. Maybe he's forgotten, but I haven't forgotten that I murdered a man 40 years ago. I don't remember that my, I haven't forgotten that my people didn't stand up for me then. I wasn't able to save my people then. They rejected me then. They're probably going to reject me again. And if I go back to Egypt and show my face in Egypt and Pharaoh hears that I'm back in town, I'm going to be arrested and put to a very painful death. But God says something powerful to Moses in his response. And I believe that God would say that to each one of us here this morning. I believe he would remind us of that and say that to us again. I think we often read over this passage of scripture and miss the power in the simplicity of God's response to Moses. God said to Moses, I will be with you. I want you all to say that with me this morning. God said, one more time, God said, I will be with you. I want you also to take notice how God did not bring up Moses' past in this conversation. God did not call Moses and say, hey, Moses, Moses, come over to the bush. We've got some past stuff to deal with here. He didn't criticize him for running into the desert and fleeing like a coward. He didn't criticize him for his sin of murdering the Egyptian God. Moses, God still pursued Moses. God still came and found Moses. God called Moses, chose Moses, and sent Moses despite his past. But the self-induced struggle some of us have is we have already disqualified ourselves. 
and told ourselves that we are not worthy to approach God because of our pasts. So we avoid entering into deep and intimate conversations with Him. We come to church because we know it's the right thing to do. We tithe because we know it's the right thing to do. We live our lives by godly principles. But when it comes to the intimate conversations with God, we tend to avoid them because we feel like we're unworthy and we've already disqualified ourselves. But I want to tell you something this morning that nothing can be further from the truth. God is calling each one of you into intimate conversation with him every single day. And as you see in this conversation with Moses, God did not call him and sit him down and discipline him and rebuke him first of all. God called him, chose him, and sent him straight away. So I want to encourage you that as you think, in, think about the things that God is placing on your heart and the things that he's given you going into this new year, don't disqualify yourself. You are worthy, you are chosen, you are called, and God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And just as we learn in this conversation, God's pursuing you as he pursued Moses. Now, some of you might know that I used to play a little bit of rugby. I went to a, a decent rugby school, um, just a boarding school outside here, Maritzburg, and I played rugby there. The, the school that I went to was a good rugby school. And then after school, um, I played a little bit of rugby around uh, Natal. And then I was given an opportunity to go to a high-performance academy uh, in Cape Town. Now... Being young and ignorant and my geography not being so great, when I heard Cape Town, I just I was excited and white sand, beautiful beaches, good-looking girls, I'm in, I'm going to Cape Town. Little did I know that the High Performance Academy was situated in the Borland area of Cape Town. Now, I didn't know that the Borland area of Cape Town was incredibly Afrikaans. Now, I'm originally from Zimbabwe. I didn't take Afrikaans at school. Nobody spoke Afrikaans to me while I was growing up. My Afrikaans is ni chutni. I can speak. It's about all I can say. And when I got to this high performance academy for the first couple of sessions, um, I just had to learn by hand signals what was going on and figure out how to, what the practice was doing, what the coaches were saying, which way to run, which way to move. Um, but fortunately, my coaches and my team were very graceful to me and it became the butt of a lot of jokes that I was the Englishman amongst all these Afrikaans guys. And eventually I learned the basics of some of the Afrikaans stuff. I won't repeat any of those words. Uh, but I learned the very basics that I, that I needed. But I also learned very quickly that there is a little bit of an unsaid tension between English people and Afrikaans people. I don't know where it comes from. I'm not going to wear history, but... Uh, there's this unsaid tension between English people and Afrikaans people. And sometimes Afrikaans people find it incredibly um, rude that you can't respond to them in Afrikaans. And sometimes this tension would overflow onto the rugby field. Now, it was fine amongst my teammates, but when my team played against other Afrikaans teams and I was the only English chap on the field, um, that tension flowed out onto the field. Now, my position on the rugby field was a scrum-off. If you don't know what a scrum-off is, but you know who Faf de Klerk is... That was, that, was my, that was my position. Um, now, my position on the rugby field was to distribute the rugby ball between the big guys and the fast guys to chase the ball around and move it around. Um, but the unsaid responsibilities of this position was also to get under the skin of the big guys that were on the field. Any chance you got, you would stand on a toe at a scrum. You would wipe your hand across somebody's face. If you could learn the guy's girlfriend's name before you went onto the field... 
there was, a, there was an odd chirp or a remark thrown on the rugby field. You would do everything you can to throw these big guys off their game. Now, it might have been a little bit acceptable coming from an Afrikaans guy to an Afrikaans guy, but when an English guy says something about your mom or your girlfriend, the intensity behind the chirp elevates itself quite a bit. Now, I remember this one game very, very clearly. We were playing um, a rugby side in series, which is even a more Afrikaans place in, uh, in Cape Town. Um, a club side, and we were doing really well. We had a good team. We were dominating the game. We were winning. And during the 80 minutes of a rugby game, you're protected by the four white lines and the referee. So there was nothing that these guys could really do to me outside of the law while I was, while I was on the field. But after the game, we, some of my friends, my teammates and I, went out to the local hangout place um, after the game um, in series. And just to give you an idea how Afrikaans the area was, the place that we went to was called the Vortechut which means the watering hole. Um, so as we walked into the watering hole, I went up to the, the area, the counter where you would order a drink, and I was standing at the counter, and all of a sudden, I, I, you know when somebody's looking at you and staring at you, I felt very uncomfortable. And as I looked over the counter to my right-hand side, I noticed that there were these two big forwards that I had been chirping and giving a hard time the whole game, and they were standing across the counter looking over at me, and instantly I felt incredibly insecure and unsafe, and I thought, well, I'm going to get what's coming to me. <laughs> so I quickly started to span the area with my eyes to see, right, if I jump over the counter, am I going to be safe? How quickly can I get to the door, find a window to get out of here? You know how your mind starts to race. Well, as I turned to my left-hand side to see if I could get away, um, as I turned to my left-hand side, one of my teammates was standing next to me, and his name was Shaw. Shaw was off a, an Afrikaans guy, and he was like 130 kilos. His, his arms were the size of my legs. He had a raggedy mustache. He had big hair. He had half a black eye from the game before. And Shaw was actually from the area that we had played that rugby game before. Everybody knew Shaw. They knew that he was a powerful guy and that he wasn't to be messed with. And as I turned and I noticed that Shaw was standing next to me, instantly this wave of courage washed over me. And I very quickly turned back to the counter, stood my ground, put my arm on Shaul's shoulder and kind of looked over. <laughs> kind of looked over at these two guys that were standing on the other side of the counter and I was like, yeah, what now, boys? <laughs> <laughs> There's something incredibly powerful that happens when we remember and realize who is with us. It gives us the confidence to do things that we would never attempt by ourselves. You might be feeling unworthy because of past mistakes, but remember who is with you, a God who restores and redeems, a God who doesn't let anything go to waste, and a God that can turn your biggest mistake into your most powerful testimony. You might be so far behind financially, but remember you don't serve a God that is confined by the economic state of this country. Facing some big decisions, what school subjects to take next year, what university to go to, should I resign from the job not knowing if there's a new job on the horizon? God's not flustered by the decisions that's in front of you. God knows the right way to go. He has the answers for you, and it's in those intimate conversations where he's going to give you the direction and the calling to your, to your destiny. It doesn't matter where you are when you know who you're with. The second thing, if you're taking notes this morning, is simply use what you have. We're picking this back up again in Exodus 4, 1 and 2. Moses responds to God for a second time and says to him, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. 
Now, it's important to remember that there was nothing special about the staff that Moses had in his hand. This was not an anointed holy stick that Moses had been carrying around in the desert for 40 years praying over, and he specially had it in his hand to bring to God um, at this prayer meeting. And please don't go find a stick and come to church next week with your stick. We'll be known as the urban stick tribe, <laughs> urban coffee tribe. This was just a regular stick, a regular staff that Moses had in his hand. And he had it in his hand at the moment when God appeared to him because he was going about his regular day-to-day duties. He was being a shepherd and a shepherd carried a staff. But God was going to take that ordinary stick and God was going to do some extraordinary things with it and through it. He turned that stick into a snake and then turned it back into a staff. As you go and read and study the story of Moses, you'll notice that God used that stick later on in the story to action the splitting of the Red Seas. Now, I don't want you to miss the relevance in this for all of us. You might not have a staff in your hand because you're not a shepherd, but we all have something in our hands. And when you take the ordinary thing that you have in your hand and you place it into God's hands, God can do extraordinary things with it and through it. You might not be in your dream job right now, but if you commit that job into God's hands, God can use it to equip you and train you uh, for the, the dream job that he does have for you. Maybe you're a runner and you enjoy long distance running. I don't know why you would. <laughs> not my favorite thing to do, but, I, but maybe you're a runner and you enjoy running. And you're like, well, that's completely ordinary. How's God going to use running? And God's like, well, I know. I know a lot of men out there that would never step foot inside a church, but they enjoy running too. I want you to start a casual running club. I want you to invite them to your running club. I want you to spend time on the road with them, running with them, befriend them, get into a relationship with them. And when you do, I'm going to start to work on their hearts. And when I work on their hearts, they're going to start to ask you conversations about the God that you serve, the church that you go to. This is going to be your opportunity to speak into their life and share what I've done in your life and share the love that I have for you. You might be thinking, all I do is work on cars, repair engines, repair cars all day. And you're thinking, well, that's pretty mundane, just an ordinary job. How's God going to use that? God's like, I know. Why don't you invite two young people to come and join you in the December holidays? Teach them your craft. Teach them how to work on cars and prepare cars. Spend time with them. Speak into their lives. So when they graduate from school, they, they have something to go and do. They're not just left... Um, they're not just left wondering what to do. Give them an opportunity to learn your craft. And as they're learning your craft, speak into their lives and share with them what I've done in your life. What you have is exactly what God is going to use. Don't write off the ordinary things that you have in your hands. Place them into God's hands and trust God that he can do extraordinary things in them and through them. And the third and final thing, if you're taking notes this morning, that you need to take down as a main point is simply do what you can. Start where you are because it doesn't matter where you are when you know who you're with. Use what you have because when you commit the ordinary things like sticks into God's hands, God can do extraordinary things through them. And lastly, simply do what you can. In Exodus 4, verse 10 and 12, we're picking up this again where Moses responds to God for the third time. Moses responds to God. He says, Moses says to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am, I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, 
Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. As you go and study this full conversation this week that Moses has with God um, in, the, in the full context of Exodus 3 and 4, you're going to notice by this point in the conversation that there's a little bit of tension that begins to grow uh, between Moses and God. This is the third time that God responds to Moses. God's like, Moses, I've told you I'm going to be with you. Moses, I've shown you my power and I'm going to work my power through you. Now, Moses, I need you to go. I need you to get moving. I need you to get started with what I'm asking you to do. But Moses is still like, oh, God, I'm not so sure. I don't know what to do. Now, some of you might be in that place in your conversation with God. You know what God's asking you to do. You've seen how he's worked in your life before and worked in others' lives around you. But you're still humming and hawing. You're still coming up with every kind of excuse as to not to get started with what God has placed on your heart. Those of you that have young kids um, or who have had young kids, who have been around kids, will know this kind of tension well. It's the kind of tension that is experienced at bedtime. I don't have kids of my own, but my older sister has four of her kids, and I've spent a lot of time uh, with them. And I've been around to see some serious bedtime negotiations. Those kids can be almost fast asleep on the couch. I think I'm pretty sure I've seen one almost falling asleep with a piece of toast in their mouth. And as mom or dad mentions bedtime, it's like you're dragging them off to an extra math lesson. They are wide awake and every possible excuse you could think of. Mom, my foot's itchy. Mom, I need to feed the cats. Mom, uh, I need to change my pajamas. Mom, every possible excuse that you can think of. And you can kind of see this in this conversation um, starting to take place between Moses, Moses and God. And as these excuses start to get bigger in the room um, between my sister and their kids, the tension starts to grow until eventually like, okay, I'm going to go to bed now and slowly start exiting my way out of, out of the room. You might be in that place this morning. God might have been speaking to your heart about something. Maybe it's that business idea. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's the healing in that relationship. But you're unsure because you've experienced some disappointments, some failures, some setbacks. It hasn't been an easy couple years. It's been difficult to recover from everything that's gone on in Durban and in our world. But something I noticed when I thought about those bedtime negotiations that I've experienced between my sister and her kids is that my sister's not asking her kids to go to bed and she's not sending them to go to bed as a form of punishment. She's doing it because it's the best thing for those kids. They're tired, they need the rest, it's in rest that they're gonna grow strong. They're not gonna wake up cranky the next morning. And that's exactly what it is like when God asks us to do something. He's asking us to do something because it's the absolute best thing for us. Are you ever gonna be completely prepared to do it? No. Are you ever gonna feel completely confident to get started? No. Is it ever gonna be easy? No, and if it was, you wouldn't need God. But it's like this. Can you completely heal your marriage today? No, probably not. But can you say sorry and take ownership for your part? Yes, you can. Can you completely get out of debt today? 
No, I don't think so. But can you seek some financial help and some financial advice and start to make some better decisions to move towards financial freedom? Yeah, you can. Can you become an A student and change your report that's on its way in the post? No, you can't. It's too late now. But what you can do is start to set some goals to become a better student, to get better marks in the new year that's ahead of you. What you need to do is just simply start where you are. Use what you have and do what you can. Let God be God. Let God fill in the gaps. Let God teach you along the way. Let God equip you along the way. But you just simply need to get started with the things that God's placed on your hearts.